This podcast is brought to you thanks to the generous support of Whistler Blackcomb, leaders in delivering adventure. Skiing with a large rifle in kind of gray bird conditions where you can't really see much was really unnerving. And it it's one of those elements of adventure that is the outcome's uncertain. It really is. Like if you encounter a polar bear, you really don't know what the outcome's going to be. And um, that was really an exciting part of that trip for me. And Welcome to Delivering Adventure. This is the podcast that explores what it really takes to share adventure like a pro with your friends, your family, and as a profession. My name is Chris Capio, and I'm coming to you from Whistler, British Columbia. And I'm Jordy Shepard, recording from Canmore, Alberta. After a lifetime of working extensively in different parts of the adventure guiding industry, Chris and I have teamed up to launch this podcast. In each episode, you will hear top adventure guides, managers, marketers, and athletes share their best stories, advice, and trade secrets. The goal of this podcast is to share how you can take yourself and others farther from the mountains to the office and beyond. In this episode, we're joined by Angela Hawes to explore what it takes to deliver adventure to ourselves. Delivering adventure to ourselves requires a well-developed skill set. And today, Angela will share her passion for adventure, some insight into the skill set she has developed for making the most of her adventures, and how we can develop those skills ourselves. Angela Hawes is an AMGA, IFMGA mountain guide. Angela has enjoyed a successful and extensive career as a guide and instructor. Some of her many accomplishments include leading over 30 high-altitude expeditions to Alaska, the Himalaya, Karakoram, the Caucasus, and the Andes, leading seven ski cruise mountaineering expeditions to the Antarctic Peninsula, organizing cleanup expeditions on Everest and elsewhere, completing a ski traverse from Sweden to Norway across Lapland, being the deputy leader of the first successful disabled ascent of Mount Everest, being the current president of the American Mountain Guides Association, also known as the AMGA, and receiving her 2022 AMGA Lifetime Achievement Award. And Chris, these are just a snapshot of her many experiences and accomplishment. She's quite an amazing lady. In this episode, we ask Angela to share some of her latest global adventures and what it took to achieve them. Just a side note, Angela will be joining us for a follow-up episode where we talk to her about the role of professional associations when it comes to delivering adventure. All right, Jordy, let's bring Angela into the DA studio. So in setting up this interview with you, Angela, over the last few months, it's taken a little bit, uh, partly our fault, partly probably yours, uh, because you're busy and you are adventuring and you, you've delivered adventure for pretty much your whole adult life, uh, but you also still partake in a lot of your own adventures. And so over the last few months, just, just that time period, uh, you were unable to do interview, an interview with us because of, I believe, is being in Mongolia on an activity there and, uh, and also in Svalbard in Nor Norway. Uh, can you speak about those two adventures there and how they, how they differed in terms of experiencing adventure yourself and then delivering adventure? 
Yeah, you bet. Yeah, I was in Mongolia having an adventure just for myself. I've I've realized when 2020 slammed me down that um, I've spent well over three decades providing immeasurable experiences to a lot of different people. And what a great gift that has been. But I really needed something for myself. I needed an adventure that was completely different, that wasn't climbing a mountain, that wasn't skiing down one, that didn't have like, you know, a goal aside from being fun. And so I stepped out of my comfort zone big time and signed up in 2024 the Monkey Run Mongolia, which is in a crazy adventure race that's put on by a group of Brits who know how to have fun and who know how to create an adventure of a whole, what do they call it? A whole new level of adventuring stupidity. <laughs> and these guys put together this trip um, that's a race. It was an 11-day race on children's motorcycles. They were 49cc motorcycles that had never been done in Mongolia. They've done these races in Morocco and Peru, Romania. Uh, They do other crazy, silly adventures around the world as well, but it had never been done in Mongolia. So we were the pioneers to, to make that happen. And the, the great thing about it is as a guide, I'm always like spend so much time planning and putting putting together the tour plan and all the details exactly where we're going to go and we're going to spend each night and we're getting our water, all that kind of stuff. They didn't give us any details until we got over there as to where we were going to start or where we were going to end. And we knew we had 11 days to get there. And the maps of Mongolia, I mean, it's a, it's a brilliant design. The maps of Mongolia are absolute crap as are the roads. And so we're, when we got there, you know, digital tour planning was out because it just didn't have the high level of um, resolution that you needed to do that. So we're working off paper maps, which were inconsistent from one map to the next. And it was it was beautiful because I'm, it was just such a release of control and, and letting go of that that factor that as the guide that I always need to know what's going to happen next and where we're going to go. And I was just so refreshing to just live in the moment every day, figure it out, problem solve on my feet and travel in a really absurd fashion across Mongolia on these children's motorcycles that none of the locals had ever even seen. I mean, they, and that was also part of the beauty of the design of this is like you show up and you're just immediately, you're endearing because you're on this ridiculously small motorcycle that's ill-equipped for where you're going and what you're doing. And it's loaded full of gear. You're limited to 22 pounds is what you can carry. And you, you're just kind of absurd. You know, you show up in a village and they all just flock around you and they're laughing and they all want to get on it and take a picture of it. And so it's just a really neat way to experience uh, a different culture and nobody speaks English in the steppe of Mongolia. And I certainly didn't speak any Mongolian. And my partner and I just had a, uh, just a wild adventure of a time 
traveling through. I mean, the, the weather was crap. The roads were awful. The food was terrible. Everything about it was just really required a lot of um, wherewithal, but also a, an element of fun that sometimes we lack in our adventures because we can be so serious about what we're doing. And that was what I just loved about that trip. It's like, it was just, everything about it was so absurd that we would just find ourselves just riding five miles an hour down the road, just laughing at ourselves and each other. And it was just so refreshing to step out of my normal mode of adventuring and, and my, the, the vehicles of adventuring that I use typically and to experience something in a whole new way. And, and that was really refreshing and I, and I really needed that. So it was great. And are you a motorcyclist by training? Have have you, do you have motorcycle experience? No, I, uh, actually my first vehicle when I graduated from Prescott college was a motorcycle because I could afford a car. So yes, I did have a motorcycle for a couple of years. Um, but that's been three decades since I've ridden a motorcycle. And fortunately these things are very low to the grounds and you're, I think our top speed was 33 miles an hour or average 12 miles an hour. So you're not going very fast. You really don't need to be that skilled. And people, I mean, there were some very large individuals on these tiny little motorcycles. It's really quite remarkable, the wherewithal. I mean, of course, my partner and I, we were really prepared. You know, we're, we were both climbers. We had lightweight tents, freeze-dried food, you know, super light kit. But some of these individuals were huge. I mean, there were people that were well over 200, 250 pounds on these tiny little machines. And they somehow made, they somehow carried them across Mongolia for 11 days, which was a testament to uh, these little mechanical marbles. We're finding through doing these interviews on the podcast show here that uh, people are often when they're experiencing adventure, they are also experiencing some sort of discomfort. Uh, which is not all that normal in today's society. Everybody's pretty comfortable. We don't go hungry, you know, in, in our first world society. Unfortunately, a lot of people do go hungry uh, around the world, not experiencing adventure at all. But when we are experiencing adventure in, you know, the North American culture that we live in, uh, we're not that, we, we, we often get some discomfort in order to be experiencing adventure. And uh, it sounds like being on that little motorcycle couldn't have been comfortable. Like, you know, not to mention the inclement weather and the bad roads, but just like I, I'm a motorcyclist myself and I've got a, a, a real sport touring, uh, dual sport uh, motorcycle. And yeah, I find even on that, I'm, I'm riding in, in beautiful, clear weather on good roads. And after an hour or two, I need to get off and stretch. And being on one of those little tiny bikes must have been crazy, uncomfortable. Well, I, it actually was fairly comfortable for me. I think I was just the perfect size. Some of my clients call me their pocket guide because I'm tiny. <laughs> but this bike for me was a good fit. Uh, you know, someone who's six foot tall would have been extremely uncomfortable. I can only imagine. But I'm 5'5 five five and pretty small. So it actually wasn't that uncomfortable. But, you know, it is a single cylinder little tiny machine that has a lot of vibration so there definitely were a lot of rest stops where we just like splayed out on the ground and you just like oh my gosh am i still moving or am i stopped <laughs> like 
Yeah, shaking, yes, the, shaking was, the hands out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there was times where it was really cold and, um, you know, we, my partner put dishwashing gloves. We carried dishwashing gloves with us because we had to change the spark plug and the oil and that kind of stuff. She put her dishwashing gloves underneath of her other gloves uh, to provide some warmth. And if you could see some of the pictures of what some of the other folks, some of the other participants did to shield them from the weather, one guy wrapped himself in saran wrap. You know how you go to an airport and you see like the luggage that's been wrapped by the saran wrap machine? This guy wrapped himself in saran wrap. And it's just like the ingenuity that people put together under duress to try to make themselves comfortable is, is remarkable. Speaking about the dishwashing gloves, uh, another mountain guide in Canada here, just I was on a mountain rescue week with him recently, and he turned me on to these, uh, they're Japanese fishing glove. And so you can think about being, you know, in the sea of, sea of Japan where they're fishing and, and, you know, it's cold and it's wet and uh, yeah, just unpleasant environment probably to, to work in with your hands for dexterity. So they're called Showa, S-H-O-W-A, Temres, T-E-M-R-E-S, winter gloves. They're a fishing glove and you can order them online. And uh, I, so I just got a set, just a heads up that they fit a little snug. So you might want to go a size up off uh, than, than what you normally would do. And they have, they have a bit of a liner to them, but they're, they're like a dish glove, but a very robust one that's that's waterproof but also has a bit of a liner so they've got a bit of warmth to them too and uh, they just seem like they're going to be great for a lot of alpine activities yeah what a great tip that sounds excellent good for ice climbing and summer glacial extravaganzas and and just those wet kind of ugly days Ugh. like even you know you're hiking right and yeah, yeah. you just you just want to be away from the elements that creates that barrier so let's talk about uh, your experience in Svalbard, Norway, recently. Oh, yeah. that Svalbard was remarkable. It's a place I've always wanted to go. However, I've had a lot of trepidation about two things going there. One is the polar bears, and two is living on a sailboat. Um, I'm a landlubber, so you know, spending... Um, two trips, I guided two trips that were nine days each on a, on a small sailboat was, I, I thought that would be really challenging, but it was actually phenomenal. And it was just such a cool way to experience that place. Um, as for the polar bears, we didn't see any, fortunately. Um, I would have loved to see one while I was on the boat, but it was, um, Definitely very edgy. And the climbing that I've done up in Canada, I would also describe as edgy when you have grizzly bears in close proximity. And a polar bear, I mean, you, you as a guide, you have to carry a large firearm with you to protect yourself. Obviously, it's illegal to kill a polar bear and God forbid anyone ever has to, to protect themselves, but you do have to know how to shoot a large firearm. So that was a whole different skill set and element of guiding that uh, I had to develop. Um, my father was a hunter, so I grew up around guns, but I never really became a hunter or desired to hunt myself. Um, but a good friend of mine has 
firearms and she took me out and we did some training and and then I had the opportunity in Svalbard to do a little firearm practice but um skiing with a large rifle in kind of gray bird conditions where you can't really see much was really unnerving and it it's one of those elements of adventure that is um the the outcome's uncertain. It really is. Like if you encounter a polar bear, you really don't know what the outcome's going to be. And um, that was really an exciting part of that trip for me and almost a little too edgy. I mean, it really just makes you realize how the adventures that we have, I mean, I don't want to downplay adventures, but like compared to back in the day, the old adventures, Shackleton and all the things that, that they had to deal with and all the uncertainty and not even having maps of some regions and knowing what to expect. Um, it's pretty soft these days. And when you get into an adventure where you're not at the top of the food chain, it really reminds you that um, we really don't have as much control as we think we do. And the skiing on that trip was absolutely phenomenal. It was, you know, there's nothing like skiing you know, taking off from the sailboat on a little Zodiac and landing on shore and clicking into your, your bindings to skin up a mountain and, and look all around and just see nothing but vast landscapes of the Arctic ocean and all these fjords and, um, just feeling so out there. I mean, literally you're 10 degrees from the North pole. Um, and with that also, came a, a large sense of like sadness of the state of the climate and climate change that we're seeing. We should have seen ice up there. One of the reasons we didn't see polar bears was there was no sea ice uh, at that time of the year and there should have been. Um, so there, there's definitely when you go to these polar regions and you experience and witness those types of changes, it, it really, um, is is it's shocking as it should be yeah it's uh it's very stark reality when you go to these places and that's i think that's part of it when we're adventuring uh whether it's for guiding and delivering adventure to others or when it's delivering adventure to ourselves through your experience in mongolia there uh it it really gets us out there to realize what's happening in the world. And it's so easy to be insular and kind of in our own, our own little zone where unfortunately we are, if we don't pay attention, we're also seeing that things are changing. I can tell you here in the Rockies, Canadian Rockies, yeah. it's, it's crazy. The acceleration of, of change that we're seeing. So this is a skill, uh, d delivering adventure to yourself is, is a skill we feel. Uh, tell us about that. How have you, you know, you've delivered adventure and, and practiced and refined that as a guide and teacher for your whole life, it sounds like. But, uh, you know, for, for keeping it going for yourself, what what are some, any tips, tricks, things that, that keep that fresh for you and keep you wanting to experience that? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think my expectations um, have lowered over the years and that I can find adventure in many more things that I ever really um, used to seek out in the past. I, you know, I think adventure, it's always in the past 
been something for me where I had to go far or I had to like have something that was going to be really, really challenging, but more so it's become, um, an attitude for me. It's like, wow, there's, there's adventure to be had in just about everything. If I open my eyes to the possibilities and, and the curiosity that, um, opens my mind in ways that I don't always think um, to seeing things in different ways. And I just, um, I don't have to go as far as I used to. Not that I don't want to. I, I love our planet. We live on an incredible, incredible earth. Um, but I really can find that adventures can be small and just as rewarding if, if, if that's my attitude. We're going to pause here for a moment so that we can ask you, our listener, an important question. Are you enjoying this episode so far? If you are, then please take a moment to follow the show in your favorite podcast app or service. Jordy and I have a lot of great content coming your way, including more episodes on how to manage risk and avoid misadventure, what to do in the moment of crisis, how to manage conflict and adventure, how to coach people through fear, how to make better decisions. We have case studies and the list just goes on. When you follow the podcast, you don't have to worry about losing the show because new episodes will come directly to you when they are released. If you've already followed the show, Jordy and I would like to thank you very much for your support. You're awesome. Now, back to our interview with Angela Haas. So, Angela, you've gone through a whole bunch of different types of adventure skills from, you know, the cultural. I couldn't help but think uh, when you were talking about the food in Mongolia in Whistler here, there's a there's a restaurant called the Mongolian Grill, and it's very popular uh, because it's very good. But I had a client once who who said, he, he said, yeah, I, I went there and I spent a lot of time in Mongolia. And I'll tell you what, if if you came to Whistler or start a Mongolian restaurant and, and you actually serve what they eat there, you'd go out of business. So, you know, often, you know, the food in, in places can be an adventure on its own. You talked about the, you know, the, the cultural um, adventure of, of navigating through the different uh, norms and, and that sort of thing on some of your climbing. Group dynamics, uh, I noted that you had led a, a trip up Everest um, with a with a large group and, and didn't quite make it, but having to deal with that and and of course, the environments uh, that you're in, you know, all of these require different skill sets to pull those adventures off. And you become an expert at this, but I'm sure that there are some skills that you have that you've really had to, to work at that didn't come as naturally to you as others. What are some of those skills that you've really had to kind of focus on and, and how have you worked to develop those in yourself? Great question, Chris. One of the um, things that's changed a lot since I've got into guiding and doing this all on my own is um, navigation tools. And uh, I've always loved working with paper maps and a compass and uh, just really, you know, looking at the terrain and, and figuring out, you know, how to how to match it all together. And I've been quite challenged by the whole digital revolution of mapping. And, uh, you know, I think some have really taken to that. And I guess I've never really, I didn't come from a place of tech. Um, so for me, pulling out my phone and using it 
the map. I just find it really clunky, not only to use in the field, uh, now that I have to wear reading glasses especially, so being out in a whiteout, trying to put my reading glasses on and use my phone is, um, it's been challenging and, and the, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely been one of the skills I've had to put a lot of time in and it seems like the platforms change regularly. And, um, that's, that's something that is a continual work in progress is to becoming really good using all the navigation tech and it's great. Uh, it, it certainly makes life easier, but I do find that it, it makes me pay a little bit less attention than I used to because it is so much easier out in the field to just, oh, here I am, the blue dot, rather than really paying attention to exactly, you know, the drainages and the ridges and exactly where I am on the map. And I miss that a little bit, but I almost always carry a paper map with me in the field uh, because I, I, I really like that. So the, the whole digital tech thing has been a challenge. Um, other things I've really uh, had to work at are um, weather forecasting. You know, I, I worked as an avalanche forecaster for a heli ski outfit down here in Telluride for a number of years and um, becoming um, proficient with all the mapping tools and all the models and, and producing a forecast in a really short amount of time uh, when... I live at altitude and, and we're right on the edge of the Colorado Plateau. So it's just a really interesting dynamic environment down here and, and having to um, learn those weather reading skills and mapping skills and to be able to put out a forecast on short order um, was definitely a, a big learning curve for me. And, it, and I really enjoyed it, but it was, it was definitely a challenge putting all that together as is um, avalanche forecasting. And um, as you all know, you all are the experts up there in Canada with avalanche um, risk management and uh, producing amazing risk management models like the conceptual model of avalanche hazard that we all use as kind of the, the code of how we manage risk and how we uh, work um, as individuals and as operations to framework, uh, put, a, put a framework around what's acceptable, what's not, how do we manage uh, our uncertainty and, and how do we, how do we learn from that to, to come back at the end of every day and go do it again? And, um, so that's always, I mean, the whole avalanche forecasting thing and risk management is a constant work in progress that I, you know, I'm, I'm a so-called expert at it, but I really do approach it with a, a large degree of humility and respect that um, it's one of those things I can never, I never know at all. So to err on the side of being conservative is kind of my mode. Yeah, those are kind of the main things that have been, challenging that I have had to really step up my game. It, it's funny, the, um, your comment about the, the mapping and, and how easy it is, but we can tune out. I ran into these guys the other day uh, in behind where I live and they're driving up this gravel road and they're clearly lost. And we, you know, we stopped and asked them, well, where are you going? 
They said, well, we're driving up to, to Whistler Village and we're going to go up the, the, the gondola to go up the mountain. And you're thinking, you are going to a world-class village and North America's biggest ski resort and you were on a gravel road driving up this valley with nobody in it. At what point here did you think that maybe you were going the wrong way? Like, and, <laughs> and you know, and you stop and you're like, well, how did you, like, how did you get here? And oh, well, Google Maps, you look at it and you're like, you are like 10 kilometers away from where you need to be. Just turn around and go back down the hill. So <clears throat> these things, they are amazing tools for us, but you still have to be able to use your your common sense. And we have a lot of these modern things that make life so much easier for us, but we still need those skills to to be able to navigate and problem solve and, and enjoy things. What type of skill sets do you find yourself working with with your guests to achieve adventure? Like what is the secret, you know, there, you, you sort of highlighted a couple of the technical skills, but, you know, when it comes to actually delivering that adventure experience to yourself, what is that secret, do you find? Really, it's the progression of getting the skill sets that you need to get to where you want to go. And that doesn't happen overnight. And so really, it's, taking it step by step. It's just like climbing a mountain. You have to put one foot in front of the other before you can take a giant leap to get to the top. And um, that can be anything from like familiarity with and comfort with using the equipment and, and just showing someone a more efficient way of, you know, striding out on the skin track to provide people with um, a sense that they're okay, that they're actually comfortable in this and that impels them to want to do something more that enables them to step out of their comfort zone a little bit because they've overcome something that was a challenge and now they're comfortable doing it but then again they kind of want to try something a little harder because they believe in their potential to do that and so for me as a guide or even myself, deliver myself an adventure. It's really making incremental steps to get there. And uh, it wasn't like uh, for the monkey bike adventure that I like went out and did a lot of motorcycle riding, but I did um, learn how to take a carburetor apart. You know, I did get some of these foundational tools that I knew would help me along the way. So I didn't just show up and, and not have any skills to get there. So really it's just that progression of what you need to do to be comfortable. And then the next step and, and the ability to, to push yourself a little bit, to be uncomfortable, to, to embrace that uncertainty with the confidence that we're pretty amazing when we can really apply ourselves and, and focus all of our energy in one direction. On that note there, Angela, do you think that we as guides, professional guides could do a better job uh, in the mountain industry of creating progressionary levels for our guests, for our clients, so that they understand better how they can progress through their skill set building? I, there's always room for improvement. I think, think some 
guides are exceptional at that. And, you know, a lot of um, people have built their businesses around a, delivering a progression and taking clients from the beginning all the way through the end. But I think as a whole, as an industry, the way that we've approached um, adventure and, and getting people to achieve some of their, their goals is it has been short-sighted and it doesn't necessarily always serve them well, because if you come at something from uh, building a relationship and building those skill sets as a progression with the same person, same relationship, maybe same mountain range to get the skill sets that you need to build up to those bigger goals, it would provide a much, uh, you know, I think it would just eliminate a lot of um, un uncomfort, uh, discomfort. It would eliminate a lot of uncertainty and it would provide the, the guests with uh, a, a better holistic perspective of it all. So before we finish off here, can you tell us about how you're helping others to achieve adventure now? You've got some initiatives that you're working on and with. Well, there's a lot of different initiatives I've, I've undertaken lately. Um, one of the things that I've done is stepped into the discomfort of climate change discussions. And uh, as a mountain guide, I'm beginning to share my stories of the experiences that I've, I've had over three decades of seeing tremendous change in the places that I work and play. And um, I'm excited to take other mountain guides on this journey with me to, to help build tools that we can use to share our stories. Um, that, that's something that's, um, again, not comfortable, but like any adventure, it, uh, there's a, an element of discomfort in that. Um, but how about chicks climbing and skiing, uh, which I believe now stands for Inclusive Rock Ice Ski, I-R-I-S. Yeah, great. Great. A big part of um, what I've focused my efforts on for years is uh, getting women into the outdoors and getting women into the technical space of being self-reliant and, and going out and having adventures with each other and building community around that. Um, I was a guide for Chicks with Picks for years and years, and uh, we started out uh, with ice climbing adventures down here in Uray and expanded all over the country. And that since developed into chicks climbing and skiing, which I purchased with several other guides. And, and we expanded our areas of uh, getting these gals out into the outdoors and continuing to build community through um, really empowering clinics where we weren't just guiding gals, but we were teaching gals the skills and providing coaching and mentorship for them to go out and put the ropes up themselves and uh, organize adventures and know all the things that they needed to do to be comfortable and self-reliant out there. And that has recently sold that business to uh, another company, and they've since turned it into iris which is inclusive rock ice and ski and uh, they'll take it to the next level but it's um it's important work is developing these opportunities and providing opportunities for people um 
who have affinity with others to get out and be in a space where they feel comfortable to learn and share and push themselves um, in a space that's supportive. That's amazing. We know how it feels for us to have experienced what we've experienced and to be able to bring that to others in a very diverse setting is just absolutely incredible. Like there's nothing better that you can do for others is to, to give this, you know, skills and joy and confidence and experience that we have gained. It's a, it's a yeah. true gift. It is a true gift to give back in that way. It changes lives and it, it gives people the confidence that they can do things that were beyond their wildest dreams. And, and that takes them to new places. Okay, Angela, we're going to let you go here for now. Thanks so much for this. If you would like to find out more about Angela's many adventures, you can check out her Instagram page at alpinist007, which I think is a pretty fitting account name for her. We will put this in the show notes for you. So Jordy, what were some of your key takeaways from what Angela had to say about delivering adventure to ourselves? Chris, this was a great interview. Angela is an amazing adventurer. There were a number of takeaways for me from having the right gear, being open to learning new skills, and needing to be open to being uncomfortable. However, there were a few that I really want to highlight. The first one is navigation. To experience adventure, we have to be able to find your way literally and figuratively. This means knowing how to read maps, use digital navigation tools, which are constantly evolving and improving. There's, they're just amazing nowadays. And also being able to use our judgment to actually see what the terrain looks like when we get there in the terrain and then move through it efficiently and safely. There's a lot, of, lot going on to make that all happen. It also means having a good idea of what we're getting ourselves into and we do that through good pre-trip planning using all the navigation tools we can find. This requires some imagination on our part and research. I was recently guiding mountaineering in an area where the most recent guidebook was published in 1974. But through talking with others uh, that had been to the area, doing some online research and using a variety of maps and navigation apps, it was a very successful trip. The second one, Chris, was to prepare. I've heard it said that if you fail to plan, then plan to fail. One of the keys to succeeding at anything is to be prepared, and being prepared can mean spending more time practicing, developing skills, planning, and researching. Examples of preparing that Angela shared was practicing her shooting and firearm skills in case she, unfortunately didn't, but in case she uh, met a polar bear in Svalbard on a recent boat ski touring trip there, and then learning some motorcycle mechanical skills ahead of time in case she had to fix her monkey bike in Mongolia. Those are great points, Jordy. There were two takeaways that I'm going to add to this discussion. The first one is to be adaptable. Even the most carefully planned adventure is full of surprises. This is why we have to be adaptable. Being adaptable requires us to be open to the unexpected along the way. Last year, I did a hike with a man named James who shared a story that highlights this point. Apparently, James had traversed Greenland and had made it to both the North and South Poles on skis. On one of his trips to Antarctica, it was minus 55 when they arrived. What he said next will always stick with me and highlights the importance of being adaptable. In his words, 
everyone has a plan until the door of the plane opens. To become adaptable, we need to be flexible. We need to be open to changing our expectations, and we need to be creative and solution-oriented. An example that Angela shared was the monkey race in Mongolia where the starting and finishing points were known, but not the route. In fact, Angela knew very little about the route and the culture. While she knew where she was going, she wasn't entirely sure how she was going to get there. Listening to her story, we can hear that she was open to trying new things, she had a positive attitude going into the race, and she was prepared for any number of things to happen, including having to deal with her monkey bike breaking. The second key takeaway for me is that adventure is for everyone. We have said this before, and I'll say it again. Adventure is something that anyone can experience. While Angela shared a number of crazy adventures that might seem beyond the reach of many, we can tell you that with the right instruction, coaching, encouragement, and mindset, anyone can push their limits. Maybe skiing with polar bears in Norway isn't your thing, but that doesn't mean that there aren't adventures out there right now that you might be thinking are beyond what you can do that are actually totally attainable for you. So after listening to this episode, the question for me is, what is your next adventure going to be and what are you going to do to make it happen? That's it for this episode. Chris and I are just getting this podcast launched and we have a lot of great content coming soon. So make sure that if you haven't already done so, take a moment to follow or subscribe to the show so that you don't miss out on our upcoming episodes. Also, if you enjoy adventure in the winter backcountry, whether you snowshoe, ski, snowboard, ice climb, alpine climb, or drive a snowmobile, check out our partner podcast, The Avalanche Hour, to hear some great avalanche stories and conversations from around the world. You can even tune in to hear an episode where I share the latest avalanche search and rescue techniques with Caleb and his listeners. The Avalanche Hour is found wherever you find your podcasts. We think you'll enjoy the show. Check the show notes for a link to this podcast, as well as our contact info. Before we go, we have one last funny story from Angela. Thanks for listening. One of the craziest experiences I ever had, which is so different than um, my normal guiding experience. I'm pretty good at keeping track of all my clients and bringing them all home. Um, And this particular trip, let me preface it by saying all the clients did come home, but they didn't come home with me. Uh, It was a trip that I was guiding down to Karsten's Pyramid, which is one of the seven summits. And this was a long time ago, back in the the 90s. And it was unbelievable misadventure most of the way because we couldn't get to the mountain because the helicopter operator had gone on strike because the company that they had the logging contract for had gone on strike as well. And so the long or the short of it is I had two different groups that I was going to guide on the mountain. And one was the first group of four and the second group was coming 12 days later. Well, it just so happened we never made it to the mountain with the first group. And so here I had 12 days with four clients who, you know, are very driven, ambitious. They really want to climb the mountain, but we just couldn't get there. 
And by the time the second group arrived, three of the clients from the first trip decided they were just going to stay. So now I had a group size of seven that I was supposed to guide solo up Carson's Pyramid, which is a technical peak. Um, it's mostly fixed ropes, but it's like real deal and uh, out there in the middle of New Guinea and or West Papua. And so here I am now with seven clients and the, and the, the whole time I'm thinking, OK, I'm going to have to climb the mountain at least twice because I can't guide seven people on one go. So I'm just in my mind trying to figure the logistics of it all and we continued to be plagued by awful weather, travel difficulties. And in the end, out of all those seven clients, only one made it to the mountain with me on the helicopter because the weather closed in. The pilot had never even been there before. So getting to the mountain was a true adventure itself. But the weather closed in. So I got dropped off at base camp with one client. And then I never saw the rest of the clients ever again, you know, and to Mountain Madness's credit, who I was working with, they refunded everyone who didn't make it to the mountain and everybody made it home. I'm sure they had a huge adventure making, getting home themselves. But the irony of it all is like, it was just awesome guiding one client on this super technical peak and we summited and it was a huge success, but just wondering in the back of my mind the whole time, what? what's happened to my other six clients and where are they? And I had no, no control and I had no sat phone and there was no communication. And I didn't find out until fortunately the helicopter came back to get us when it was supposed to. And I learned that everybody went home safe, but it was just crazy, you know, going from thinking I'm going to guide seven people on this mountain and then coming with just one, but it was, it was awesome. 